Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing today, sir? Great. Yeah, it's a lot of fun talking about the scriptures. I never get tired of it. Yeah, I know you do not. And it's mm-hmm. equal parts impressive and fascinating. So let's see where that takes us today, because I'm really curious to see what kind of thoughts you got in terms of this week's reading for the Come Follow Me, which is going to be in Doctrine and Covenants sections. 18 and 19. But before we get to that, wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So let's go ahead and start with uh, 18. I have some things to start off with as early as verses uh, 3 through 5. So this is a revelation to Oliver, Joseph, and uh, David Whitmer. The Lord is talking specifically to Oliver real quick. He says, if you know that they are true, meaning the words of the Book of Mormon, I give you a commandment that you rely upon the things which are written. For in them are all things written concerning the foundation of my church, my gospel, and my rock. Wherefore, if you shall build up my church upon the foundation of my gospel and my rock, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. So I couldn't help but notice the Savior's insistence on relying upon the things which are written. In this particular case, the Lord seems to be talking about the Book of Mormon, and he tells us that in those words, or he tells us that in those words are all things concerning the foundation of his church. Uh, And he uses the words, his gospel and his rock. And then we already went over verse five. And I thought that was interesting because it says that if we build the church on those things, then the gates of hell should not prevail. So I always like to point out verses like this in conversations Mm -hmm. about the liberation of marginalized groups, because so much of what we do as a church when it comes to these groups is not rooted in scripture, but in societal norms, directing things back to the scriptures as the foundation of his church, sorry, quote his church, his gospel and his rock makes, makes it easier to talk about how to affirm these groups as there are far more passages and narratives on, uh, on justice, equity, compassion, love, fairness, etc. than there are that reinforce bigotry. You know what I'm saying? Like there's only seven of right. the so-called clobber passages, but there are so many, there are whole stories and whole passages scores more than those passages on a big that re, that are used to reinforce bigotry, and the Lord names this as the foundation of His rock and His gospel three times in these like thirteen or fourteen verses. We see it in verse four, we see it in verse five, and then we see it in verse seventeen again, right after He. Uh, explains what exactly the apostleship is, which is basically to cry repentance unto the people. So I just found that really interesting that uh, he seems to want to really reinforce what his gospel and his rock is. And I wanted to see if you wanted, if you had any ideas about the significance of this phrase rep- uh, being repeated three times in uh, in this section. Well, for me. One of the important things that I've been stressing for the past two years is the role of Scripture as a platform for resilience. And that's exactly what we hear. It says, if you you rely upon the things which are written, then this is your rock. This is your foundation. This is what you're standing on, and the gates of hell will not prevail against you, right? So you'll be able to withstand all of these things that come at you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the significance of reiterating the foundation because a lot of people will want to claim that the foundation is you know last week's general conference i mean or last not last week but last general conference like that that's their entire primary connection to faith is what happened recently with the with the leaders and that's mm-hmm. not the foundation that's part of the ongoing conversation mm-hmm. but that's not our foundation mm-hmm. and, a, and a true foundation in the scriptures at least for me I have the privilege of um, being very well informed and taught about the scriptures. And so I've always wondered what would happen if I got stranded on a deserted island with no books and no scriptures and no access. What would I 
do? I would have to. <laughs> what would you do with your life? I would have to rely on everything that I have already in my head, which is a mixed blessing because I would be sad to not have the written scriptures, but I would also be able to rely on that which I know. So I don't know if, if you were stranded on a deserted island and you couldn't have any books, but would you want to have me there? I don't know. That would be a, <laughs> you'd get t- Derek, tired of my jokes. I don't think I could stand the company of any one person on a desert <laughs> island. Like, I mean, not a slight against you or anything like that, but like, I couldn't do that with right. anybody. Like, Uh-oh. everybody at some point is going to be insufferable to my introverted self. Oh, well, how about we move to verse nine? Are you ready to move there? Uh, yeah, I am curious about verse nine because uh, yeah, there's some there's some interesting. Is this like the first time we actually see the Lord make a call of David and Oliver to the apostleship? Yes, I think so. All right, let's talk about that then. So it says, um, so the Lord is speaking through the prophet to Oliver, Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer, saying, "Quote: I command all men everywhere to repent." And I speak unto you, even as unto Paul, mine apostle, for you are called even with that same calling with which he was called. That is interesting. Yeah, there's two interesting things. The first thing is calling all men everywhere to repent. That's a major theme in this section. The word repent or repentance is found 11 times here in this section. The second thing is, what does it mean to be called the same way that Paul the Apostle was called. Yeah, like why did he use Paul as the example and not like the other apostles, not any of the original 12? Like, is there something to be found there? Yeah, for me, I think it's because Paul is an outsider. He was never numbered among the other 12 apostles. And Paul asserts that his own apostolic authority does not derive from any human ordination or authorization. He obtained it directly from Jesus. This is what... Paul insists on in the opening of Galatians where he says, Paul, an apostle, not of man, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And later he says about the gospel, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he's talking about his Damascus experience. Like that's when the Lord called him to this ministry and and he didn't get his authority from any other man, right? Right. And that's, I think, the power, and that's actually more powerful, I think, to have your independently grounded authority directly from God. That's exactly the type of authority that Oliver and David were supposed to have. That's how I'm taking this. Okay. And then I want to talk a little bit about the next two verses, 10 and 11. Remember, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. For behold, the Lord, your Redeemer, suffered death in the flesh. Wherefore, he suffered the pain of all men, that all men might repent and come unto him. Here I have two brief things to note. First, the worth of souls being great changes how we view people and how we treat people, or at least it should. Right. We need to assert the worth and dignity of all human beings. And this connects with my second point. Jesus suffered the pain of all men, including the pains of the marginalized. But there are two ways that you could apply this, right? You could say, well, Jesus took away the pains of the marginalized, so we don't have to do anything about it, right? It's all taken care of. It's all, you know, we can just paste over everything with the wallpaper of the atonement, even though it looks tacky. Good metaphor. So that's one thing. Now, now, I love the atonement. I just don't want it to be misused in an abusive way to say, we don't need to take care of people because Jesus took care of it. Right. Or you could say, every time you add to the suffering of the marginalized, you add to the suffering of Christ. Yes, sir. Hebrews 6, verse 6, talks about Christians crucifying Christ all over again by their refusal to be in right relationship with God and with neighbor. Mm-hmm. And so that's the way I want to frame it. Like when you're doing this to my people, you're doing it to Christ. And you can't claim to hurt me in the name of Christ when Christ is the one that you are hurting. Whatever you did to the least of me is you, you did to me is what uh, Jesus said in Matthew 25. Right. And I want to continue this theme about repentance in verses 15 and 16. 
And this is the famous verse. Uh, I, I've loved these two verses for, for many years. And if it so be that you should labor all your days in crying repentance unto this people, and bring, save it be, one soul unto me, how great shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of my Father. And now, if your joy will be great with one soul that you have brought unto me into the kingdom of my Father, how great will be your joy if you should bring many souls unto me. Last week we talked a little bit about, I want to empower the listeners to do everything I do. I don't want to be like some gatekeeper. That's the whole opposite of the queer movement is is the other way around is saying, look, each individual has access to God, has access to skills and tools, and has an innate power. Anyway, so here's one of the tools is a slow and close reading of the text. Like, ask what that word is doing there. Like, if you see the word therefore, you should ask, well, what is that therefore, therefore? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't do that on purpose. I'm impressed. Um, yeah, so so just ask what every word is doing, like what other word could it have been, and what was the intent? So here it says, how great shall be your joy. So here this is, joy is a priority, right? Right. How great shall you be your joy with him? Notice that relationship. And then it says, in the kingdom of my father. And what we see from a close reading is that there's more than one kind of eternal relationship. Look at those words with him. Many people think that the sealing power is merely about just being together again. But notice that the relationship between an individual and that individual's convert, the person that they brought to right relationship with God, that relationship is eternal in the celestial kingdom. How great shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of my father. Right, so like I said last week, Elder Nielsen's he's going to be stuck with me forever, <laughs> right? He's the one who baptized me. And let's talk about joy. We've got in Second Nephi 22, 2, verse 25, this idea that Adam fell, that men might be, and men are, that they might have joy. And a little bit later, I'm going to talk about the gender-neutral usage of the word men. Okay. And... Th- that's the whole point of repentance is joy, joy for the joy on the behalf of the one calling to repentance and the joy of the one who repents. But let's let's talk about this because repentance so often gets used and weaponized against my people. Like you need to repent of your existence. <laughs> you need to repent of your identity. You need to repent of the things that when straight people do them it's totally fine. There's this complete double standard that we are asked to repent of things that straight people aren't. So here's the point that I want to make is that repentance, if you do it right, true repentance looks different for LGBTQIA plus people. It looks different for gay and lesbian folks. It looks different for bisexual folks. It looks different for trans folks and even different among different trans folks. It's, repentance is going to look very different. And here's what I mean. We need to repent of internalized homophobia. We need to repent of transphobia. We need to repent of complicity with the system. We need to repent of horizontal hostility within the community. We who are LGBT and white need to repent of our racism in the LGBT community. Repentance is about the restoration of right relationships. Repentance looked different for everyone Jesus met. Jesus is all about the one, this whole one-by-one thing. He ministers to each of us as individuals. And I want to talk a little bit about the account of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. Hopefully people remember it. I'm just going to summarize real quickly. So this Philistine named Goliath, really tall and strong, challenged the children of Israel And everyone on the side of Israel was so scared. They had no idea what to do. And there was about to be this battle. And then David came along. He was actually just bringing food and supplies to the army. He was not a soldier. He had no, no experience at all as a soldier. And because he was young and inexperienced, people did not take him seriously. No one took him seriously, not even his own family. 
but he offered to fight Goliath, and they fight. Everyone else was too scared to, so they said, "Okay, David, you do it. Go ahead." And then King Saul tried to put his own armor on David, but that armor was too heavy, and it obscured David's abilities. What worked for Saul did not work for everyone. What David ended up doing was, of course, had no armor, just his sling, and uh, and hit hit Goliath with the uh, with the rock and a sling. But here's what I want to say: What worked for Saul did not work for David. And if you force me to wear your armor, it will obscure my abilities. Mm. The solution is not going to look the same. Repentance is not going to look the same. It may even look completely opposite for queer people than for straight and cisgender people. So here's my message to all of you that think you know more about my life than I do. If you think that I have to do what worked for you, you need to send that idea back to the hell that it came from. (laughs) There's no place for that in Christ's church. Hmm. And in connection with this reality that repentance looks different for LGBTQ folks, I'd like to share a poem written in November 2015 by Arthur Diaz Jr. My assumption is that this poem is a description about being queer in a religious setting controlled by straight people. And the foundational analogy here is between penguins and flamingos and straight and queer people in the church. Okay. So here's the poem. I wish I could uh, read this well, but I'll Sorry, just... Sorry, I missed the title. Does it have a title? There was no title on this. Okay. Um, no title. It says, I'm a flaming flamingo. That maybe is the title. I'm a flaming flamingo, bright and beautiful. I live among Puritan penguins, and my colors offend them. For they were born modest and reserved... Somehow they tolerate the cold and the ice of this place. But me, I am different, so I am wrong. Everything is black and white, they declare. There is wrong and there is right. And of course, it makes sense to them. They were born to fit the mold, black and white. But me, I am pink. And these penguins, they detest everything that I am. They mask their hatred with theology. And because I am different, they condemn me. Not as I am, but as I wish to become. For I have always longed to be free of this place, of their remarks, of the ice and the cold. As a creature of flight, I ask myself, why am I here? I have the power to leave. My wings can carry me away. Yet it is these wings that enslave me. God never made birds to fly, they preach. Your wings may carry you away, but no brightness of light nor greenness of pastures far away could ever outweigh the expense of violating God's unchanging laws of physics. But my wings are different than yours, I protest with no use. We weren't meant to defy the gravity of this world. We just learned to live with it. And if I... As if I could try hard enough to become as they are, but I know I cannot endure. This place is a never-ending winter of both the mind and the body. I examine my feathery wings, my pink tones and hues, and I hate myself. I should be able to live in this place. If I were different, it wouldn't be hard. But God made me this way only to punish me for ever trying to fly. And the penguins and their words have finally led me to a cliff. So as I fall, I ask myself and God, must I spread my wings or must I die? It's a it's a beautiful poem. It makes its point very clearly, in my opinion. Right. There's probably very little we need to say about it. Yeah. And this is what this is one reason I struggle with poetry or art in general is like sometimes they can be read a variety of different ways or sometimes it's something that I, or sometimes it's just too deep for me and it just goes right over my head. But this was very simple. Like there was a story Mm -hmm. in there, there was a narrative and it seems to be very clear what it's trying to communicate. Yeah. And 
it may have been hard because you you're not reading it uh i mean the audience the, our listeners they don't have it in front of them so they can't really see the quotation marks and which are the voices of the narrator and which are the voice of the penguins but i think it's pretty clear all the awful stuff that was the penguins voices mm -hmm. but i just thought about this it must have been so hard to be a flamingo in i'm presuming antarctica with the penguins you look different you are structured different your wings are shaped different and everyone who tries to make you into a penguin if when you're if you're a flamingo that's got to be torment oh absolutely now people will wonder like do i feel this way and the answer is no i don't feel like a flamingo among penguins hmm. because i'm a peacock <laughs> I have lovely, pretty feathers, and I can't fly very well, so that's not my my thing. But I am so pretty, like I am fabulous, and so I'm a I'm a peacock. There you go, Derek. <laughs> and let's talk a little bit about the structures that put the author of this poem in that situation. Are you familiar with Martin Seligman's? Uh, experiments on learned helplessness I, I forgot to ask you beforehand no no i'm familiar like okay uh, good yeah well do you want to describe what happened uh no i do not okay <laughs> i want to okay. see where you're going with this because like okay. all i know like it depends on which experiment you're talking about because right. he did a couple right. of these right yeah, he a couple did, with yeah, dogs a couple a with other animals yeah but I'll, I'll basically talk about the whole it's kind of the the, the implications of his entire sequence of experiments. So okay. he did these experiments in the 60s with dogs, and he came up with this concept called learned helplessness to explain something that the uh, Pavlovian understanding of conditioning couldn't explain. And then I'll talk about the implications for the LGBTQ community in in the church. Okay. So as they were as they were trying to investigate behaviorism they decided and i think now this would be unethical and not pass an ethics board at a university but here's what he did mm -hmm. he decided to shock dogs but there was this little lever that if they pressed the lever they could turn off the shock and so some of the dogs had the ability to turn off the shock and others did not in the so that's the the control and then after they went through these situations, they were put in these shuttle boxes that had electrified floors and, and they wanted to see what would happen. And in these shuttle boxes, they were not tied down. Or originally they had harnesses to keep them being shocked, but then when they were put in these shuttle boxes, there was just a small little divider partition that they could jump over at any time they wanted to, to a place that wasn't going to shock them. And so here's the main difference. What happened was the dogs who had been trained with the lever that could turn off the shock, when they got shocked in the shuttle box, they looked around, you know, they, the, the lever didn't work. They didn't have that option anymore. So they said, well, what do I do? There's got to be something I can do. And then they just jumped over. They danced around a little bit and figured out what to do. They could just jump over. But the dogs that did not that went through the training with no ability to turn off the shock they just laid down on the electrified floor and and whimpered and they just let themselves get shocked even though they could just jump over this little divider and so the explanation here was this concept of learned helplessness that the dogs who had no control over what was happening to them learned in a sense that there's nothing that they could do to fix it so that later on when there was something they could do to fix it they just didn't even know that that was an option mm. and i think that is really what's happening to lgbt folk, or it can happen very easily to lgbtq folks in the church who learn that nothing we do matters nothing we do can stop the awfulness nothing we do can change the church or our families or all these other things mm -hmm. and there are many LGBTQ folks in the church, there are so many who just lay down and let themselves get shocked over and over. And I'm not blaming them. We should never blame the victim, but we need to look at the situation that put them in this place and figure out why are they in this thing that shocks them over and over, right? Mm -hmm. 
In the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, LGBTQ folks are absolutely battered by the system. But in my case, I'm basically immune to learned helplessness. I have not learned the learned helplessness. Hmm. So what do you think about this before? And I love this experiment because just reframing it and knowing that stuff like this can happen in our psychology can really give you a measure of power, right? It can oh, absolutely. at least, yeah, right? Well, yeah, so what do you think about this? I mean, I was just thinking about all the other applications we have of learned helplessness in uh, the church, you know. I definitely see this happening with LGBTQ folks, but immediately in my mind, I thought about uh, women and modesty culture. I thought I thought about how some people in these marginalized groups mm-hmm. sometimes become agents of their own oppression because yes. they may have been raised in this situation or circumstance that tells them they can't rebel against it. They can't say mm-hmm. aught of it. And this is a lot of what Jesus Christ, I feel like, de- dealt with in his time. He dealt with a lot of people who were dealing with uh, learned helplessness, people who perhaps thought that, uh, you know, they couldn't go against conventions and so they didn't try to uh, do anything. Mm-hmm. We saw this with Alma, the younger, when he was preaching to the uh, apostate Zoramites who got kicked out of their own synagogues. They're like, what are we supposed to do? Like, we don't have money. We don't have costly apparel. We can't worship anywhere. So, like, what to do now? You know, I, I can't say at least they were semi trying to look for solutions, but Alma kind of like put them onto some game and saying, yeah. look, you don't have to worship in a synagogue to worship Christ like that. Like you don't have to listen to what the rich people and what the popular people tell you to do Like they don't make the rules on this business of how to worship or where you can worship. Like, do you really suppose you can only worship one day a week? Do you really suppose you can only worship in your synagogues? Like, I mean, we see this in so many ways across, uh, you know, across history for one thing, but also mm-hmm. across groups. And, uh, you know, I see this a lot with uh, people who grew up with very black and white thinking when it came to the church, to the, so much to the point where if just there's just one little crack in the armor, you know, it's pretty mm-hmm. much over for them. They just lay down and they accept defeat without, you know, without trying to do anything like there's a lot of people who are who have more or less normal or conventional Mm -hmm. uh lives in the church as a result of their upbringing but no matter how like successful they may seem or how happy they may seem they're already in a state of learned helplessness because you know if that just one thing shakes their faith if just one Mm -hmm. thing pushes back on what they understand as convention they're pretty much out of the game we saw this when uh, President Oaks said Black Lives Matter uh, for the first time. And we saw how fragile some people's faith was in that moment and how so many people were willing to discard President Oaks or discard uh, the church even just because he said something right. that pushed against their understanding of what the church was. So, sorry, I'm, I'm ranting now. I'm rambling now. But uh, I, I really like oh, how no, you made that connection. That, that's a lot, lot of... Uh a lot of great insights there. Yeah, I just, I just see it everywhere, man. I see learned helplessness in a lot of different places to the detriment of marginalized mm-hmm. groups and also to the point where, you know, even sometimes we can be our own worst enemies, I hate to say. Um, you know, we don't really experience this in the black community a bunch. I don't encounter a lot of black folks who believe that the priesthood ban was ordained of God or believe that we ought to be content with not receiving an apology and not receiving reparations of any kind. But I do know in the gay community or in the LGBTQ community, rather, there's a lot of people uh, who are agents of homophobia or of transphobia, people who have learned helplessness to such an extent where they're just like, oh, I might as well conform or assimilate as much as I can to this oppressive status quo if I want any degree of happiness. Yeah. And this is important to name because there are straight people who defend the status quo in the church by pointing to... Yeah, these uh, I don't even want to call them queer because they're not queer in their thinking. They're people who are struggling with same gender attraction is how they self-identify. Right. And they point to them and say, look, there's these people who cooperate and they're the ones that affirm our church doctrine and they defend our church doctrine as it's currently understood. Mm -hmm. And so look at them. And so you have to take them into account. Well, what I want to say is two things. First of all, it can be very different than, for example, in the black community, where if you have 
black folks, they are typically either raised in black families, have black parents, black parents who understand and support them and teach them and pass along resilience. Like I'm, I'm assuming that almost every black parent has to teach their black kids a, some amount of resilience and how to navigate the world. Right. Mm. And we who are gay typically are raised not in a gay community. We don't know when I grew up, I had I know no one who was gay. No adults who were gay, no gay community, no gay parents. I was raised in a straight family. So when black kids are raised in a community that looks like them, a church that looks like them, a, a school that looks like them, you know, for all the wrong reasons, we've got still segregation. But queer people are raised by straight people and they adopt all of that straight supremacy. It's completely internalized. They are essentially a straight thinking person who just happens to be gay. Right. And that's, I think, a big factor in complicity is that they have a major incentive to cooperate. They can benefit in numerous ways in terms of social standing, in terms of losing your, not losing your family. There's a whole bunch of biases that keep LGBTQ people complicit in the system, and there aren't exactly the same biases for uh, black folks. Um, yeah. Like, black folks never have to be worried about uh, being rejected by their black parents because they are black, right? That's that's not the, not, well, a, not it, the same. I mean, it depends on where you are, man. Like, there are oh, really? instances, yeah, like, you know, some par- like I knew some black kids growing up who had some very self-hating black parents and oh. like taught them to straighten their hair, lighten their skin, just didn't mm. like themselves, wanted them to assimilate as much as they could. So I'm not going to say it's nearly the same thing or it happens as frequently or, you know, it's obviously not completely analogous, right. but it does happen where some right. black children are raised by black parents who hate right. their own skin. Yeah, and I'm guessing in that case, you've still got the same dynamics. It's because of the power structure that people need yes. to survive or that they need. It's, so it's not like the black parents would want to keep that that status quo. They're just trying to navigate the system as best they can and teach their right. kids to do that. So yeah, that, if there's one big takeaway here, it's to at least know that learned helplessness is a common phenomenon. And just even knowing it and having the awareness gives you a major head start in in um, being able to change things and feeling a sense of power. And my understanding of the experimentation is that recent experiments are in the direction of, it's not the learned helplessness that is learned. It's the, it's the helplessness that is the default position. And it's actually the resourcefulness that is the learned thing that when the dogs uh, were able to stop the pain with the lever, they learned uh, issues of power and and control and resilience, and they learned that they could do things to stop the pain, and that I think is Im- uh, important to name. Yes, sir. I want to go into verse forty-two real quick. It yeah, says, "This is interesting." For, yeah, for all men must repent and be baptized, and not only men, but women and children who have arrived at the years of accountability. What is this, Derek? Like, what is happening here that they feel like they got a you know, actually specify women. Cause like usually when they say men, they mean, you know, the whole of humankind, but the specificity right. here, I found very curious. Did you have any feelings on that? Yeah, I have, I have, I have some feelings on this and uh, <laughs> hopefully people, hopefully people will be patient with me cause I'm going to go through a lot of material here, but, but I really want to ground this in some of the evidence. So we've got two usages here. The word men is used in two senses in this verse. The first, when it says all men must repent, the first is used of all humans, no matter the age or the gender. And then the second usage of the word men is used of adult males because it is intentionally contrasted with women and with children under the age of eight. And I love the inclusive nature of this particular text. It's one of the few places in the Doctrine and Covenants where we have explicit mention of women. And here in this verse, by implication, it's the equality of women on the same terms as men, meaning adult males. And I just did a a search this morning. The word women is used 11 times in the Doctrine and Covenants. The word men is used, and I'm going to let our listeners guess 
for just a second. Think how many times you think the word men is used. Well, time's up. The answer is 426. Dang. 11 women and 426 men. And this also includes the singular of both, singular and plural of both. And that, that needs to be named. And we need to know why it happened and what to do about that. Um, and I am not the best positioned person to, to talk about how to fix this situation and what needs to be done. But I want to talk about, well, why do we see this, this phrase, all men? We see that in the Book of Mormon. We see that here in the Doctrine and Covenants and, and the way the word men is used. And in our generation, the word men implies a gender, but it wasn't always so. In older English, the word man could either mean human of any gender or a male human, and which one of those two it was depended on the context. And, um, and here I want to be very careful. I want to be careful to engage only in descriptive linguistics. I want to just describe and report how the man how the word man has been used in English and not saying how and when we should use it. So I'm not, I'm not doing the prescriptive approach. And there's a substantial body of documentation that the word man has, has been used in a gender neutral manner. Uh, we may not be able to do that anymore, but it, it has been used in a gender neutral manner up until the 19th century. So let's look at the Oxford uh, English Dictionary. And some interesting observations here from comparative Indo-European linguistics. That's a way to, to make yourself sound smart if you say comparative Indo-European linguistics. <laughs> and so Latin, Greek, and then the Germanic languages all derive from a common ancestor. And so in Latin, we have a triple of words. One word, homo, means, well, it doesn't mean what you think it means. It means, um, I would love to make a joke right here, but I'm not. The word homo means human. Uh, of either gender. Uh, the word vir in Latin means a man, uh, a adult male, and the mulier means a woman. So here we have a gender neutral word, homo, which gets translated as man, and then vir, which also gets translated as man. And the same thing is true in Greek. Anthropos means human or man. Aner means man in the sense of adult male, and gune means woman. And then the same thing is true of Old English, also called Anglo-Saxon. We've got the word man, meaning uh, the species, uh, the humans, right? Uh, where meaning an adult male, and weef meaning woman. And where is cognate with the Latin vir. So that is the word for adult man, which has been dropped out of English. So now we just have the word man, which used to be gender neutral, and now it is uh, reduced in its usage to meaning uh, just a man. It has, uh, or it has, it has adopted what used to be where, now it gets called a man. So, um, oh, I, I, I wanted to say that if, uh, if I ever get accused of mansplaining, I'm going to say, well, actually, it's wearsplaining, <laughs> right? Okay, so where, my point is where is the gendered, the old English gendered word for what we now call, call man? And the only right. uh, sort of remnant of this is the word werewolf, which is a man wolf. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the Oxford English Dictionary, it says um, under the word man, it's, the first definition is a human being irrespective of sex or age. And there's a note in the OED that says that it was considered until the 19th century to include women by implication, though referring primarily to males. It is now frequently understood to exclude women and is therefore avoided by many people. Notice that they're descriptive as well. They're just saying what people say and what people said. They don't tell you what you should say or should uh, should not say. Mm -hmm. My sense is that we should probably now avoid, oh, here I'm being prescriptive, but my sense is to, on the side of caution is to avoid the word men because it could be uh, construed 
not gender neutrally, right? Okay. So we should be if we're if we have a choice between something that's more explicitly gender neutral, we should just take that just to be safe. Got you. And so, what's really interesting is uh, I sent you this part of the Oxford English Dictionary entry for the word man, and if the last uh, quotation under this definition. We have John King, the Bishop of London, said in 1597 in his lectures upon Jonah, here's what he said, the Lord had put, the Lord had but one pair of men in paradise. Let me say that again. The Lord had but one pair of men in paradise, meaning Adam and Eve here are both called men. And I think that's a very interesting. Now, I don't want to do a queer interpretation of this and say, well, if there's two men, of course it's paradise. <laughs> 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 right, because that would leave out uh, women. Right. And then I just want to, earlier we've got uh, an old English author, Alfred, in his homily on the beginning of creation. Here's what he says about Satan, and here's the old English. He come tha anedren hiwe todam tuam manum, and in modern English, it would be, He came then in a serpent's form, to the two men, first to the woman. So he's saying, he's using the word man gender neutrally, the two men, first to the, to the woman, and, and then uh, later on to Adam. So my point in all this is to say we have evidence that the word man can be used gender neutrally and in the 19th century in the Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants it almost certainly in every case was used gender neutrally when the context dictates that it should be uh, understood that way. Now okay. I'm not at all dictating saying I'm not justifying people using exclusive language now or using the word man and just using it well I can say man because it's gender neutral but I'm just trying to say we're here in this in this uh podcast I'm not here to be an expert on women or women's issues I'm just trying to say well what did this text mean in its context and we're that's kind of where I'm going with all this. Right. You're just reporting. Exactly. So, but and the reason I'm doing this is to point out the inclusive nature of this verse. The verse says, for all men, meaning all humans, must repent and be baptized. And not only men, but women and, and children who have arrived at the years of accountability. My initial response when I read this, I was like, this is probably some of the most inclusive language we've seen in uh, the Doctrine and Covenants that actually goes out of the way to specify that men in this case actually means literally all humans. Yeah, that's awesome. And thank you for enduring to the end of my little <laughs> little lesson on <laughs> random my, linguistic stuff. My pleasure, brother. Um, maybe we should talk a little bit about section 19. I know you had some thoughts here. Tell me what, what your thoughts are. So much of this section is to a Martin Harris who is tormented with doubts and unsurety about contributing financially to the printing of the Book of Mormon. He would need to mortgage his farm to cover the cost of printing, which mm -hmm, right. isn't really a small sacrifice. He could lose his farm if the Book of Mormon doesn't sell well. He could lose his standing in the community. His marriage, which was already fragile, could probably be lost as well as a result of the sacrifice. The Come Follow Me manual makes sure that we know that, you know, his wife as well, Lucy Harris, mm -hmm. did not have a testimony of the Book of Mormon. And uh, you could argue was already having some pretty hostile feelings towards the work that he was doing. Um, but it makes it really interesting that this is the section where the Lord bears witness to his own suffering and declares in verse right. 15 of his suffering, how sore you know not, how exquisite you know not, yea, how hard to bear you know not. Like he's saying this to a Martin Harris who's clearly in anguish. And uh, Martin Harris was, I'm, like I forget if he actually requested this revelation or this revelatory commandment. But, um, you know, I like that the Lord is starting off by letting him know that you think you know suffering. You don't know my suffering. Like, 
And then he goes on in verse 16, for behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, meaning what you experienced, what your pain is that you're experiencing right now, Mm -hmm. Joseph's pain, Oliver's pain, David's pain, the pain of everybody who has been on this earth and will yet be on it. I experienced that stuff and it caused me the greatest of all. This is verse 18 now to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer both body and spirit. And would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Nevertheless, this is 19 now, glory be to the Father, and I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. It's almost as if the Lord is saying, I know exactly what and how you are feeling. I made sacrifices. I did things I didn't really want to do, but they needed to be done because I knew what was at stake. I knew what was necessary for the salvation of mankind. I know what you're feeling. I knew what the work was like. And I, I, I know like, that's what the Lord is saying there. Like I get it. And I get it to a degree that you cannot possibly comprehend. He's at once showing empathy to Martin. And also he's gently mm-hmm. scolding him, which I can also understand Martin at this point, we got to remember what Martin has experienced. He's had several manifestations, including, you know, being the scribe of Joseph Smith first season, being able to see the words as they were being dictated from Joseph Smith. He was one of the three witnesses to the book of Mormon. He saw an angel. He saw the plates And he should have all the evidence that he needs. You know, he has a testimony. He has more than a testimony. Yet he still has doubts that cripple him to the point of inaction. And that's basically why we have this section. This man who is really struggling has doubts to the point of inaction. And the Lord tells him later in the same section to covet not his own property, but to impart freely to the printing of the Book of Mormon. Now, I think any of us, can understand. I don't I don't want to make it seem like Martin Harris was such an outlier. Like I don't think I think any of us can understand that divestment from, you know, your possessions or from economic privilege or any kind of privilege can be really difficult even if the Lord is the one asking, even if we have all the evidence we need to know mm-hmm. that the Lord is the one it, who's asking. You know, we see this a lot today. We, we see it with many of the saints who refuse to divest from straight supremacy, white supremacy, patriarchy, and any other engine of bigotry. It's costly to stand against a system that validates your way of life, that validates your existence at the expense of others. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, difficult to uh, divest from a society, from a dominant society that you're in. However, the existence of white supremacy is a statistically indisputable fact that dispossesses entire populations of people, and the people of Christ are to have no part in that. You know, divestment mm-hmm. from that could cost us, it could cost us opportunities, it could cost us money, it could cost us relationships, you know, it could essentially deconstruct so much of what our existence is built on to the point where we, some of us may even have to start from scratch as mm-hmm. we try to forge a new identity that is demonstrably and consistently anti-racist, uh, affirming, uh, you know, just mm-hmm. otherwise liberationist. There is so much discomfort that Martin stood to experience as a result of participating in the Lord's work. And he knew that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the saints know that too. It's one of the reasons why we don't, why we didn't, why so many of our congregations didn't say anything during the protests of uh, George Floyd's death last year, because having to do so, having to speak out in an anti-racist manner would potentially anger a lot of people. It would put a lot of us in very uncomfortable positions. It would put us in a position where we would have to acknowledge that who we are as a church or who we are as disciples of Christ doesn't actually bear witness of Christ in the way that it ought to. And that's a very uncomfortable thing mm-hmm. to do. I believe that's kind of what Martin was experiencing here, or at least a portion of it, uh, because somebody with his knowledge, somebody with his testimony probably shouldn't have logically been experiencing as much difficulty as he was in divesting his economic privilege for the sake of the work. But it was uncomfortable, and it would put him in a precarious position. In fact, we know it put him in a precarious position. The Book of Mormon did not sell very well to the point where um, 
Martin actually had to sell uh, some of his farm so he could like be put out of that debt. Um, however, we see in this section, let me see, what verse is this? This is near the end. Duh, duh, duh. Oh, that's for, that's section 18. That's why I ain't see it. Uh, verse 34, impart a portion of thy property, yea, even a part of thy lands and save the support of thy family. Like he already tells him, you're going to have to do this anyway. So like, be ready to divest a portion. Be ready to sell your property for the sake of my work. Be ready to bear that sacrifice. Um, so I feel like the Lord is speaking to all of us in a manner of speaking here uh, in telling us that we got to be ready to sacrifice. Like we won't all be asked to sacrifice the same things, but uh, as part of our discipleship, we should regularly ask ourselves what we're willing to give up for the sake of the advancement of Zion and for the sake of, uh, you know, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the cause of Christ, whatever that may be. Uh, do you have any immediate responses? I, I've been talking for a while. Right. Yeah. I love how you brought out that this is an an action that, so in the context, remember that um, Martin Harris was one of the few people in the community that had a substantial amount of wealth. He was the only friend else. Joseph everyone, had that had this kind of wealth. Yeah, everyone else here, like Joseph's family didn't have money. The other families didn't really have a lot of money that were already part of the movement this far. So what Harris is asked to do was to use his economic privilege for the benefit of others. And he was told not to covet his own property or preserve his own privilege. And I think our instinct is to want to be um, relying on something other than God and just right. re relying on our own abilities to uh, to do whatever it is that, that we think we need to do to be secure. Like there's a fragility that l makes us cling to our privilege. Yeah. But the irony is that that this divestment of privilege was actually an investment because he invested the money in the work, in the community, on behalf of everyone else to make the publication of the Book of Mormon possible, which to his surprise would eventually become a toning award-winning musical later um, <laughs> right like and that musical has gotten millions and millions of dollars um but anyway so and, and this is this is here in the text it's not something that i'm just making up it's explicit here in the text in verse 38 where it says i will pour out my spirit upon you and great shall be your blessing so yes he's going to make this sacrifice but he's also going to give um to receive a greater blessing it says yea even more than if you should obtain treasures of earth so what the lord is promising to martin is say yes you need to sacrifice your privilege on behalf of everyone else but actually you're going to benefit more and this is the, the really really the cruel piece of fragility is that if we gave it up we oppressors would be better off i actually wanted to know what you make of uh the lord's signing off words here like what he had to say to martin harris when he said canst thou read this without rejoicing or lifting up thy heart for gladness or canst thou run about longer as a blind guide which i found very interesting and then finally, or canst thou be humble and meek and conduct thyself wisely before me? So like, mm -hmm. I wasn't sure exactly what he was getting at here when he asked if he could run about longer as a blind guide. Like, we, we've seen this phrase before. Last time I saw it, actually, and the time I'm, I remember it most is in Matthew 23, right, when right. the Lord accused the scribes and the Pharisees of being blind guides, of being, and, and we know that Matthew or sorry, that the Savior was very upset in that particular chapter as he was talking. Um, but I just was wondering, what exactly is he saying to Martin Harris here? Like, is he trying to tell him or kind of rhetorically ask him, are you going to act like you don't know that I'm in control of this work? Because that's kind of the vibe that I mm -hmm. got. But I just wanted to make sure I wasn't missing anything as I read these final words from the Savior to Martin Harris. Right. I think in the context of Matthew 23, Jesus' accusation is that uh, his 
opponents were telling other people what to do and not doing it themselves. It's the hypocrisy that is being pointed out mm-hmm. in the Matthew 23 text. Now here, I'm not sure if in the historical context what hypocrisy Martin Harris would be engaged in other than if he's telling other people to do things like uh, believe in the Book of Mormon, if he's not fully invested himself. But I do want to step back and talk about a larger issue, and it's the, the usage of the word blindness here and using a disability as a metaphor for a moral flaw or a um, something negative about a person. Mm-hmm. And we should be really careful about that. And just because the language is in our text here does not mean that we should. And here I'm going to be prescriptive, right? So I think we should not use uh, phrases like, and this happens a lot in the marginalized or in oppressed communities. There's this urge to say, oh, look, these people in power, they turned a blind eye to this, or they turned a deaf ear to our pleas, or, or they use this other these analogies of disability to say there's something wrong with the uh, what the oppressor's doing. And we I think we shouldn't do that. Okay. So and, and I remember my my Greek professor many years ago who taught me Greek. Uh, he said he had a very interesting encounter with one of his students who was blind. And this blind student said that she grew up in a very faithful Christian household. And she read all of these texts in the New Testament that said, um, you know, if you have faith, you can be healed, right? And so she truly had faith that if she, and she really believed that she would be healed of uh, her blindness, and then she wasn't. And then Dr. Beck, the, my, my Greek instructor said ever since then i have taught these passages in the new testament differently because you can't just um irresponsibly give people the impression that disabilities are something that need to be fixed or must be fixed or must be fixed in a certain way or a certain time Mm -hmm. frame or that our faith will overcome whatever obstacles that we wish to overcome. It's a great point. Thank you for thank you for sharing that and and for bringing that to light. Right, but in in terms of Harris, I think there's um, now I haven't done this, but I think a, a really close reading of the last three verses and and really chewing on and meditating on each word could might might be able to give us more insight because there's an issue of hum- humility in verse forty one, or it says, "Canst thou be humble and meek." which seems to be a contrast because of the word or with verse 40. So um, running about hypocritically is one thing, or it says, or can you be humble and meek instead and conduct yourself wisely before me? So I think that's really what's going on here. Um, Encouraging humility rather than pride and also encouraging him to do, him meaning Martin Harris, to do what he's asking other people to do in terms of believing and being all in with the Book of Mormon. Wonderful. Then let's go ahead and uh, prepare to wrap some things up. Before we do, wanted to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcastnetwork. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcastnetwork. Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us on beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Also, Twitter and Instagram at BTBLDS, and also Facebook. Yes, also Facebook. Oh, speaking of which, now by the time this episode airs, the Black LDS Legacy Conference will be over, but it will be recorded. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will be streamed on Facebook Live, so you could probably replay it from there. But uh, the Zoom 
or the Zoom webinar will be recorded. I do not know how that will be made available. There will probably be a link at some point, but as soon as we're available of that, we will go ahead and post that, post that to our socials. Um, anything else coming? Oh, um, and just by way of thank yous, we want to thank uh, the collaborators who've been participating in our creation of the content. Also, especially thank you to uh, David Doyle for handling our transcripts and uh, Tamara, Kems- Tamara Kemsley for doing our audio editing. We've kind of been giving her a lot of work to do. We've been working on uh, some new bonus episodes that we've been trying to uh, get out to you guys. Now that uh, things are chilling out, or not really chilling out with the pandemic, but now that people are managing it a little more, uh, we are able to get some more of these bonus episodes out to you guys. And uh, we just really want to thank you guys for your support that has been allowing us to be able to get more of these done. And uh, they've been a treat for us as well. We're learning new things with every single one of these episodes, and we can't uh, we can't wait to share some of them with you guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any other events that we got to, or things that we got to announce and make known to the people, Derek? No, I don't think so. And with that, thank you guys very much for joining us till we meet again next week. Bye, everyone.